I'm Aaron David Miller, and this is Carnegie Connects. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this wonderful world of ours. I hope you are truly safe and healthy. I'm Aaron David Miller, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and welcome to Carnegie Connects. A set of virtual issues, at least of conversations, at least for now, on issues of critical importance to America and to the world. Today, I'm delighted, uh, very delighted, to welcome Susan Glasser and Peter Baker for a discussion of their new book. Their new book, I can't believe I do not have it. I will get it by the end of this podcast. Um, the Divider, uh, Trump in the White House 2017 to 2021. Uh, Peter and Susan, welcome to Carnegie Connects. I, I, I have to say that the two of you continue to tackle the most daunting and fascinating of subjects uh, with extraordinary reporting perspective and incredible attention to detail. The notes alone are remarkable. I pointed out elsewhere that the two of you have not only produced the finest volume on James A. Baker, one of my heroes and one of the two greatest secretaries of state in the last half century, but now you've gone on to produce what the Washington Post described as the most detailed and comprehensive account, single volume account of the presidency of Donald Trump who many regard as the worst president in Republic's history, the best and the worst. Indeed, the contrast, frankly, between Baker and Trump is head exploding. And maybe uh, later on, you might offer a thought or two. But let me start this way. Um, I'd like to start on focusing what surprised you the most during the course of your research on the book. All presidents, Jonathan Alter once wrote, are to some extent blind dates. Our three undeniably greatest presidents, Washington the 18th, Lincoln in the 19th, FDR in the 20th, the first and last had resumes and experiences which would argue they were not blind dates. Lincoln, obviously not so much. Um, and you point out uh, and make the point that Donald Trump had not a single day of experience either in the military or in the government. And yet, paradoxically, he was incredibly well known. Um, no opacity there, uh, at least not not much that we thought. So I guess I'd start with two questions. What did you learn about him during the course of your research that was genuinely new? You both reported, Peter, you for the New York Times uh, uh, and Susan, you for the New Yorker. What did you learn that was genuinely new during the course of research? And then second, your thoughts on whether uh, Donald Trump really was a blind date based on his origin story shouldn't we have been shouldn't we have known or and or been surprised or not surprised? the kind of president he became? Well, uh, if it was a blind date, I'm not sure, uh, you know, that the country was ready to uh, go again for, for another round, right? I, Donald Trump was incredibly well-known, Aaron, to your point. Uh, he was the subject of five different full-length biographies before he became uh, a national political figure, really, you know, having to do with his business and his outside role, outsized role in New York City and on television. And I, I, I think back actually to the 2016 campaign when I was the editor of Politico and I pulled together this group of what at the time I sort of semi-seriously called Trumpologists. Uh, they'd never actually met each other before. People like the legendary investigative reporter Wayne Barrett from The Village Voice in New York City. Uh, and I re recently reread uh, that resulting conversation in the spring of 2016. And I'll tell you, it could have been a roadmap 
to the Trump presidency uh, because he tends to put things so much in terms of his own interests and his own psychology. Uh, understanding the guy was a pretty clear uh, guide to understanding what he would do in the White House. And so I do think that uh, it was all out there in many ways for us to see, but many people didn't see it. They didn't put it together. And, you know, here in Washington, when we start out the divider, the beginning of the book, you know, there's this sort of incredible scene when it becomes clear in the very first week of the presidency how misguided the Washington establishment's views of Trump were. They understood, you know, that he had projected what they thought of as a caricature uh, in the campaign and that somehow he would be subject to the normal constraints and limitations of the presidency. And, you know, I'll finish this answer just with this, this anecdote, the very first situation room meeting of the Trump presidency in January of 2017. And Trump is already being Trump and going off and complaining about South Korea and how much they charge his company for their televisions <laughs> and, you know, just refusing to listen. And it's such a disastrous meeting. They go upstairs to the White House chief of staff's office afterwards. And Joe Dunford, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, he's trying to soothe everybody. He's OK. All right. Well, as soon as we you know, get to know him better and understand the Trump doctrine, everything will be fine. And Jared Kushner looks at Joe Dunford and is like, what are you talking about? Like, he's never going to change. It's never going to be that way. And to me, I think that kind of sums it up. We knew, but we couldn't believe it. Yeah. And and Peter, yeah, I think to Susan's point that that we had every, you know, bit of information we needed before the election to understand who he was. A lot of reporting, as Susan said, on his business and entertainment career that would have led you to think what we saw in the presidency was going to happen. Similarly, what happened at the beginning of his presidency should have informed us about what was going to happen at the end of the presidency. And that's why this is the first book that really captures or tries to capture all four years of the presidency. The idea that the January 6th was an outlier is, is obviously wrong once you take a look at it, and which is what we did. It, to understand January 6th, you have to understand January 20th, 2017, and every day in between, because this was sort of the inexorable culmination of a four-year war on institutions. So a lot of us were surprised maybe on January 6th, but a lot of us probably shouldn't have done that. Yeah. And to the, the issue of what surprised you the most with respect to what was new uh, in terms of, uh, of the book's reporting? Well, I would actually say that uh, a lot of it really was around the, the challenge and the threats that Trump posed to national security. And, you know, a lot of what was taken at the time is perhaps the kind of public spectacle that, you know, the clown show aspect of the Trump presidency actually might have caused us to discount or not to take seriously enough some of uh, what were, I think, when we were able to do the reporting after the presidency, much more significant uh, threats than than we understood at the time. That includes the threat to withdraw from NATO, which was not just uh, a matter of inflammatory quotes in interviews, uh, but according to several advisors we spoke with after they left the White House, uh, much more serious than previously understood and obviously very relevant in light of Putin's subsequent invasion of Ukraine, uh, number one. Uh, threats to withdraw from South Korea, uh, that was much more real that I had personally discounted that. Uh, but I realized even in our interview with Trump in Mar-a-Lago, this is a fixation of his actually getting American troops off the Korean peninsula. Right. Uh, and then the third thing would be just the nature and, and breathtakingness of uh, the rift 
with the Pentagon and the, the, the nation's most senior generals. Again, we had a sense of it, but um, Peter and I were able to obtain in the course of reporting for this book, uh, the unsent resignation letter of Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley, uh, which speaks of the President of the United States as doing grave and irreparable harm to the country, says he does not subscribe to many of the principles the U.S. fought for in World War II, and that he was, quote, ruining the international order. And this is quite simply, you have to be surprised by this, because I've never seen another document really like it. Mm. And I'm sure Millie spent an enormous amount of time writing and rewriting that uh, that letter. The, the fact that it was never sent, though, is an interesting question. I want to I want to come back to that later on. Um, the book is certainly very well and appropriately titled "The Divider." If you looked out at the course of uh, of uh, the American presidency, you'd have to argue that many of our best presidents, frankly, were highly partisan. Um, Lincoln was a hated man. FDR was viewed as a traitor to his class. But they they tethered their partisanship to something broader, um, something well beyond their own personal agendas. Uh, I, I, I put it in my telling that um, most of our great presidents turned the M in me upside down. So it became literally a W and we. And unless you had that notion that you are tethering your personal ambition your personal demons to something broader than self, than the me, uh, the Republic could be in, in great jeopardy. Um, you quote Steve Bannon in an extraordinary quote, we didn't win the election to bring the country together. So I guess I'd, I'd want to ask if each of you could speak to the sort of motivating force behind Trump's use of division and conflict. He excelled brilliantly, unfortunately, at both. Was it money, power? Was it fame, vanity? Was it vengeance, retaliation, disrespect, or or all of the above? I think you got it all of the above there. And look, yeah, you're absolutely right. Look, politics is, of course, the art of division to some extent, right? Because you're in a campaign, you're trying to say our side is right, your side is wrong. You you know, vote for us, not them. D- dividing division is part and parcel of the system, but it's not supposed to be the be all and end all of the entire entirety of American governance, right? You mentioned James Baker. James Baker, subject of our previous book, was the you know campaign chairman for 1988 when Bush savaged Dukakis. Uh, you know, everybody remembers, of course, the, the flag and the Pledge of Allegiance and the Willie Horton and all that kind of stuff. But when it was over, they believed in doing something. They believed in doing that. One month after leaving, after that campaign was over, Baker was having dinner at the house of Bob Strauss, the DNC chairman, with Jim Wright, the Democratic speaker of the House to say, okay, what can we do to end the Contra war? And that's what's different. I mean, most of these presidents, yes, they have been divisive at some point, but they also recognize that the presidency is a larger calling. George H.W. Bush talked about having a kinder, gentler nation. Bill Clinton talked about being the repairer of the breach. Uh, You know, George W. Bush said he wanted to be a uniter, not a divider. And Barack Obama, of course, talked about there not being a red America and a blue America, but a United States of America. None of those four ever fully lived up to those aspirations. And we can certainly criticize various moments when they seemed uh, at odds with that. But they recognize that a president is at least supposed to give voice to that, that a president is supposed to, in some fashion or another, bring the country together, unlike that Steve Bannon quote you just mentioned. That was never Trump's idea. He never subscribed to that. For him, division was the purpose, the strategy, the be-all and end-all, which is why we called the book The Divider. Yes, it's The Divider, but Trump inherited a country that was fundamentally divided politically, geographically, a self-sorting process. 
uh, racially and um, presided over a set of institutions while venerable and functional were highly vulnerable to exploitation. And I, I guess that's, that's a broader counterfactual. Had he inherited a different kind of country, would in fact he have succeeded to the extent that he, he did? So what about the divider versus the divided issue? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Aaron, to spotlight the, you know, the accelerating polarization of the country as kind of the prerequisite for Trump and Trumpism. And uh, there's no question that, you know, this resorting of America into, you know, different different political geographical entities, uh, you know, is the main difference in many ways between the sort of politics that we wrote about in the Baker biography of the late Cold War, the 1980s, and even to some extent the 1990s, this was still a period when, you know, say up to half of the states were uh, potential battlegrounds at any given moment or might elect a senator from one party and uh, go for the president of a different party on the national ballot. Uh, today, that's down to a, a, you know, a small handful. In fact, in the last cycle of, of the third of the Senate that was up, uh, I think just one uh, one senator, one election uh, from a different party than the state uh, went for at the presidential level. That's just remarkable. We have, uh, you know, resorted uh, one uh, statistic that that just always stuns people uh, when when we've been citing it is that uh, the percentage of Americans today who are more comfortable with their son or daughter marrying someone from the opposite party is far far lower than the percentage of Americans today who support things like interracial marriage and gay marriage. Uh, it's just a a sign of the times that it would be more shocking and upsetting to many families to, you know, to have a child marry outside of the political faith, if you will. And uh, that, I think, is the prerequisite for Trumpism. Just one minor note on why we called it the divider. Uh, I think the thing about Trump that's so notable is that division for him was uh, certainly a political technique. Arguably, it was the only actual ideology <laughs> he has. But it also was uh, a representation of who Trump fundamentally is, because he's one of those people for whom uh, dividing and conquering is just uh, how he works as a person. And he fostered his whole life, not just in the White House, divisions among his family, among his business associates uh, and those who worked for him. Uh, you know, he is the ultimate sort of toxic boss who literally uh, would encourage what some uh, aides thought of as gladiatorial combat uh, in, the, in the Oval Office itself, where he would have feuding uh, officials of different viewpoints uh, encouraged by him to fight it out. At one point, uh, when he was in the middle of having a, a wholesale purge of his national security officials in March of 2018. He was asked about this. He said, well, I like conflict. And so I think the divider is uh, a statement of uh, the, the personality of Donald Trump, as well as the political ideology of Donald Trump. As you trace the cast of characters and in assorted uh, incarnations that ran through his White House, uh, there's no question that conflicts between and among them encouraged by the president, or as you would both agree, the TikTok you provide on the natural rivalries um, uh, just fed into that whole notion of gladiatorial com uh, combat. 
I want to ask you a question about presidential modeling. All presidents do it. They look at their predecessors, uh, either um, in an effort to distance themselves or to emulate them. All students and scholars and analysts of the presidency do it. Um, does it break down the whole issue of modeling when it comes to Donald Trump? I mean, did did Donald Trump model? I mean, I I, I know I haven't been in the Oval in his during his presidency, but I, there is a, a portrait, I think, of Andrew Jackson, whether somebody took it down during the course of his presidency, I don't know. Maybe Steve Bannon encouraged him to put it there. Uh, of course, that's a completely flawed model, given the fact that Jackson was incredibly experienced uh, in, in matters of government and war making, as well as someone who had a fervent belief in the union. Um, so were there any models for Donald Trump other than Roy Cohn and, and perhaps his father, were there other models? Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. There are, he, he didn't look at any of these former presidents as models. I think you're right that Bannon is the one who talked him into Andrew Jackson. Trump didn't know anything about Andrew Jackson. He was told that Andrew Jackson was a populist and therefore he embraced him for, you know, a day or two uh, and put the portrait on the wall. I think the portrait stayed on the wall. It just didn't mean anything to him. I think his model was that guy who was sitting behind the desk on The Apprentice for 14 years. I think that his model was this sort of fictional mythological character that he created as an entertainment uh, uh, series. And he wanted to emulate that in the Oval Office. He wanted that kind of a figure, the all-powerful, all-knowing, I decide solomonically at the end of the episode who stays and who goes, who's up, who's down. His view of politics and governance was not shaped, as you said, by any experience in government or the military. Andrew Jackson, you're right, had been a general, he'd been a senator, he'd been a governor. He was. He may have been impulsive, obviously. He was known for dueling, but he did believe in bringing the country together. And it's during the nullification crisis, he wasn't going to let the country split apart. Trump was okay with the country splitting apart as long as it was done you know, by him. He wanted it to be all about himself. And his view of government was like his view of the Trump organization, right? It's a family business, no shareholders, no board of directors. He didn't have to answer to anybody. Uh, and that's what he thought it was going to be like in the Oval Office. He kept saying over and over, I've got an article too, as if that meant he had all powerful uh, you know, authority the way he did in its Trump Tower office. Well, of course, government doesn't work that way. It took him a long time to figure that out. Right. Andrew Jackson was also uh, among our first 13 presidents who owned slaves and obviously had a, a racist exclusionary policy that uh, part of the Native Americans not bother Donald Trump uh, right you know, oh I'm sure it I'm pointed sure. out to him uh certainly what was Pat Buchanan I think you refer to Pat Buchanan as maybe a sort of a model as a pal that Trump would follow as a this can you speak to that yeah I think the point is that uh Pat Buchanan was not Trump's personal role model, but perhaps the closest recent analogy uh, as a political figure to Trump in that he seemed to appeal to the same core of voters. He actually had quite a similar program when he ran for president. He talked actually about building a wall. Uh, he used the slogan, America first. He was very much uh, uh, not only a sort of pitchfork wielding populist, but also uh, a protectionist, as Trump has been throughout his his time in in public life, and and yet what's fascinating is that uh, Donald Trump himself commented on Pat Buchanan's presidential campaign, and what he said was that he was an extremist, and he he actually the quote was that he was going after the quote wacko <laughs> vote, 
And yeah. in the end, of course, that is exactly what Donald Trump did is, is try to take those Buchanan voters. The difference as well being that Pat Buchanan did not win the Republican primary uh, and uh, was not ever in a position to exercise power over this country. We've always had uh, marginal figures, uh, right-wing populists who have uh, commanded a certain percentage of the vote in, in modern times in this country. Uh, the difference is that Donald Trump actually made it to the Oval Office and those others did not. Yeah. You mentioned the word populist, and I'm thinking how extraordinary that 46 presidencies, 45 different presidents, um, if there was any modeling done, it was certainly not modeled after any American political figure. It was, in fact, modeled after a uh, populist leader in the in the in the vein of Juan Perón or or maybe Huey Long or Victor Orban, and I, I, it's it's extraordinary that those were those were Trump's models, and it raises the interesting question about whether or not. Um, focus too much on the idiosyncrasies of Trump's personality, which masks the greater problem, which is that Trump was a populist, some would say a populist demagogue, who borrowed from the playbooks. If there it wasn't any, any ideology, that was it. It was the notion of the strong leader who can create his own truth, playing on discrimination against minorities, anti-immigration, anti-liberal, in the model of those populist leaders. And I worry sometimes that in focusing on the idiosyncrasies of his persona, which were unique, clearly, that we lose sight of this broader problem is sort of Trumpism without Trump. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. And I wonder, does that make sense to you in the course of your research? Yeah, in fact, you know, there's a scene in our book, which we uh, had borrowed from our friend Jeremy Peter's book, in which Bannon is talking to Trump about being a populist. And Trump gets it wrong. He says, a popularist. Yes, that's me. I'm a popularist. Right. And Bannon says, no, no, it's populist. And Bannon says, and, and Trump says, yeah, popularist. So he's not even intellectually, not even intellectually engaged in this. He's simply taking words and phrases and ideas that he thinks sound pretty good. But you're right about this. I think that often lost in the discussion about Trump is a sort of cartoonish element of his White House, which distracts us in some level, because it's not just a clown show. It's not just a, you know, a a carnival barker out there, uh, you know, sort of a chaotic White House, but at least doing important things. It it actually is a very radically different view of American governance than we have subscribed to for most of the last 246 years. And you're right. People he admired were not the Democrats like Angela Merkel or Theresa May or Emmanuel Macron or Justin Trudeau. The ones he admired were Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin and Sisi in Egypt and Erdogan in Turkey. I, of course, won with him once when he just met with Xi Jinping and he was just waxing uh, jealously in a way about how he could get stuff done. If he wanted to put somebody on trial for fentanyl distribution, they could just put him on trial and he could be executed within a day or two or a week or what have you. And he felt encumbered by what we consider to be the, the strengths of our institutions, checks and balances, and the idea of the consent of the government. Right. One thing where I disagree a little bit, though, is that I don't think that the clown show uh, is in opposition to the idea of Trump as a, a uniquely American demagogue. In fact, if you look, it seems to me, at, at many of those who emerged as you know strongmen, dictators in other countries, uh, you know, I'm not just thinking of Silvio Berlusconi with the bunga bunga 
party. But, uh, you know, I mean, the portrayals of Mussolini and Hitler, they also emphasized at times the fact that they were, uh, you know, basically clownish, cartoonish figures, demagogues, saying ridiculous things, uh, who would believe them, they had no credibility, they didn't have uh, the credentials of uh, establishment politicians. So I think that it actually goes hand in hand. Uh, this kind of demagoguery is very consistent with what we've seen of strong men and authoritarians in other countries at other moments in history. And for Trump, they were in, inextricably combined. His showman uh, uh, persona and willingness to clown it up in public is part of what bonded him to his audience. Thanks for listening to Carnegie Connects. This show would not be possible without the generous support of our donors. If you'd like to support us, visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to tune into the conversation live? Click the link in the description below to receive invitations to the next Carnegie Connects. Now, back to the show. It's the literally versus the seriously paradox. Um, I want to return to the issue of uh, this Trump circle, what I, I guess I would call Trump circle. You spend a good deal of time on this cast of characters that paraded through the administration. And much of, of the book, which I found fascinating, is really focused on the TikTok regarding the tensions between and among them. Now, it's hard to generalize because there were so many, multiple secretaries, two secretaries of state, uh, three, four chiefs of staff. I mean, Reagan had six national security advisors in eight years. I think Trump had six in four years. Uh, one a year. Communications directors, uh, multiple press secretaries, and a, uh, what I would describe as a sorted, sorted hangers-on. What do you make of their um, of the motives? Uh, we never really saw a mass resignation. Um, and uh, again, I, I, I don't want to, to be judgmental here. Um, you know, where you stand has a lot to do with where you sit. And in the entire history of the Republic, for example, only two secretaries of state in the entire history of the Republic resigned over matters of principle. I remember uh, discussing what Powell should have resigned, some people said, as a consequence of the Iraq war. Well, again, where you stand is where you sit. So what, I mean, I can imagine various motives being attached to people as to why they enabled, acquiesced, supported. But you also point out that you were surprised, I think I, I watched a, a previous interview you did, by the extent of the resistance there was to Trump. It may have been ineffective in the end, but there were a lot of people trying to restrain control and not be too dramatic, save the country. So what do you make of someone like Lindsey Graham, for example? You devote a lot of space and time to Lindsey Graham. Yeah. Look, there's a spectrum of these people, right? There are those who, like Lindsey Graham, had been completely opposed to Trump, called him a kook said he was the least qualified person ever to, you know, run for office, said the country would get what it, you know, deserved if it ever supported him, and then becomes his best friend or his self-styled best friend. We ran into him on the street one time. We were talking to him, and he was just gushing about his access to Trump. He says, you know, yeah, he's a lying mother effer, 
But he said to us, you know, he's a lot of fun to hang out with. And he even said as part of that conversation, he said, you know, he could kill, he could 50 people on our side and it wouldn't make a difference. Rather extraordinary. So Lindsey Graham styled himself as, as Trump's best friend, told people that he was able to, to, to steer the president away from things that were too extreme or too radical or too unwise, but basically seemed more eager to be part of the Trump circle than anything else. Then there were others who I think were more, you know, they were more... Um, uh, resistant to Trump. The, the John Kelly is a great example, second chief of staff. He didn't like Trump at all. He didn't find him a lot of fun to hang out with at all. He loathed him. And so much so that he told people who came in for a job interview at the White House, he encouraged them not to take the job at the White House. He told the young people, he said, the stink, that was his word, of Donald Trump will be with you for the rest of your life. So he was one of the ones who, in his view, was also trying to steer Trump in the right direction, but did so from a point of view of viewing Trump as a reckless, narcissistic, pathological liar who couldn't be trusted with power. And that would apply to Jim Mattis as well, I suspect. And 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 Mark Milley, too. Well, yeah. So you have different categories, right? You know, if you're doing sort of the, the social anthropology of the Trump right. administration, you have the kind of, maybe you call them the national security you know, generals with a savior complex, uh, you know, who uh, either ignored or didn't pay attention to the abundant evidence of who Trump was, and then, you know, quickly read the situation and saw themselves as sort of nonpartisan stewards of, uh, you know, the good order, regular order. I would say that what maybe united some of those people on the front end into making the mistake of misreading Trump was a shared uh, um, distaste for the Obama administration foreign policy. And that probably led them to uh, overstate, uh, you know, their ability to actually work uh, in a constructive way. In the Trump administration, there was also a fallacy that persisted for quite some time, Aaron, that, uh, you know, Trump uh, could, that they could manage Trump, that he would in fact abide by the guardrails. And I think the story, the first two years of the administration is the story of that, um, uh, let's just call it a legitimate but incorrect theory of the case being proven wrong. Uh, so that's one category of person. Uh, there's another category, of course, of the sort of more uh, partisan Republican officials who thought that uh, might have held their noses, but thought that they were getting, uh, you know, uh, their end of the bargain on policy issues that they cared about from a highly transactional president. And that I, you would put many of the kind of evangelical Christian types who entered the administration. Obviously, Donald Trump, uh, you know, in his personal life and in every way is not really, you know, compatible with them and yet made a very successful political arranged marriage with people like Mike Pence and um, Mike Pompeo and other uh, hardline uh, conservatives who took what they could get from the Trump administration. Mitch McConnell uh, is probably the, the the clearest example of that. Never liked Donald Trump, uh, visibly uh, uh, distasteful. Uh, they were openly feuding, but they basically made a deal, which we recount in the book, in the fall of 2017. Uh, and it was completely not like, okay, we don't have to like each other. It was very straightforward. Donald Trump essentially outsourced the remaking of the federal judiciary and the Supreme Court to Mitch McConnell. That's was what Mitch McConnell wanted to do. It was highly successful, judged on its own terms. Uh, you know, just in one term, the Supreme Court uh, got rid of Roe versus Wade. And so Mitch McConnell 
clearly never changed his mind about who Donald Trump was personally after the 2020 election, though he very opportunistically, it seems to me, told others, well, Trump is deranged. You know, he's lost it after the election. Well, you know, the, the story is pretty clear that actually it wasn't just some, you know, unhinged episode after 2020 election, but uh, Trump was who he was all along. So that's yeah. the biggest buck, bucket of Republican office holders, you know. In this in this cast of characters, were there any that you would describe as heroic? We literally quoted the book, a White House official who says there are no heroes. Uh, and I think there's something to that because everybody had to make compromises, right? Even the ones who did what they thought was the right thing to do at some point or another went along with things that they didn't, uh, that they didn't uh, or had their own, you know, um, flaws in various ways. So I don't know that anybody's a hero. I think, I think that there are people who... Um, tried to make the best of a situation that was bad and, and on the spectrum of bad choices and Faustian bargains, you can argue where they fall. But everybody on some level was 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 forced to compromise their beliefs unless they were one of the two believers to begin with. Yeah. I want to drill down a little on the, on the idea of in inevitability. Um, one of the arguments you make, which is fascinating, is that there is this direct line from American Carnage inaugural to the January 6th insurrection. And that January 6th is inexorable. Yeah, I think you used the word, Peter, today, an inexorable result. Michael Beschloss either tweeted or wrote during the actual insurrection, quote, um, this day has been foreshadowed by every hour of this, pre of, of this presidency, unquote. Um, I see, I, I just wonder, I see the line more clearly after the midterms and the cabinet purges, and then certainly after the election. But can you elaborate more, more precisely on this inevitability and exorability theme? Um, and I wonder, had you had a, and maybe this was part of it, had you had a different cast of characters pre-election during the transition, if, if Kelly had been there, if the crazies who were open the had an open door policy to encouraging the most ridiculous ideas of how to somehow redeem his presidency in the election were not permitted access during those critical weeks, could January 6th have, have been avoided? Or the fact that they weren't there by the end is a confirmation of your of your theory. I think you're right. That That is a key part of uh, the story, is Trump's four-year effort to purge those whom he saw as constraining him uh, or potentially stopping him from doing things that he wanted to do and surrounding himself with yes-men and uh, people who defined and understood that their role in the job was that of, uh, you know, essentially Praetorian Guard and loyalists and that they were willing to go wherever Trump would take them. So that is basically a four-year story uh, of Trump uh, at first raging against, you know, those he put in to office without fully understanding who they were or what they, you know, might do to stop him. And, you know, over and over and again, he's very clear. Again, when a person tells you who they are, pay attention. Uh, and Donald Trump told us again and again in his choices about personnel and what he said about those choices. He literally said, he literally said uh, when he got rid of Rex Tillerson, and he hired Mike Pompeo as Secretary of State. You know what he said? He said, well, uh, Rex and I didn't agree on things, you know, and Mike Pompeo always always does what I want. 
Uh, he he actually said that uh, at the White House in in a, in a statement to the press on the day that he fired his first Secretary of State. So you know, again, he told us who he was. Believe him. So that's number one. Would it have been enough to stop January six? Obviously, this is a hypothetical. Uh, we can say that if it was not Mark Meadows who was the chief of staff, but John Kelly, uh, that he certainly would have literally, you know, thrown himself in the door of the Oval Office rather than allow Donald Trump to have a five-hour meeting in which he contemplated imposing martial law with a cast of characters who never would have allowed in the door in any other White House in American history. Right. And, you know, I just, I think that that is really an important thing. And then just finally on your through line, there's the issue of Donald Trump attacking the legitimacy of any vote that didn't have him as the winner. That doesn't just date to 2020. Uh, that is something that is very consistent all the way through his his entire time in public life. Yeah. No, all the way back to this time in Hollywood, he complained when the apprentice lost Emmy, it was because it was rigged. So he told every single time there was an election, he told us it was rigged. He did this on day two or three, I've forgotten, or four of his presidency when he told Nancy Pelosi and other congressional leaders that he really actually didn't lose the popular vote in 2016 by 3 million votes because 3 million people voted illegally. He constantly was setting the stage for this fantasy view of reality where he never loses. And if anything bad happens, it's because somebody else has cheated or rigged the uh, the score. And I think the other thing in those first two years, you've talked about the second two years that translate to that final period. Look at what he's doing with the Justice Department. Look at what he's doing to the institutions of government. He's trying to bend them to his will. To him, the FBI, the Justice Department are not meant to be a political dispensers of justice, but meant to be tools of his political uh, interests. And that's, uh, you, that's a through line all the way up to January 3rd, 2021, when he's sitting there in the Oval Office with seven top Justice Department officials trying to browbeat them into telling the country that there's a fraud that didn't exist and they won't go along with them. And so I think that you can really see really from the beginning, especially in hindsight, just how we were heading toward this inevitable outcome. You know, I'd, I'd love to believe that a few good men and women in the right positions, because I do believe in the power of the individual. You know, Marx said that men, not the other Marx, not Groucho Marx, the other Marx, men make history. He was writing in the 19th century, but rarely as they please. I would like to think, and I think We've been vindicated to some degree by a, a group of individuals who were not going to tolerate a stolen election. And the Republic survived. Um, we did not go into a full-blown constitutional crisis. I'd like to think that, in fact, that's an important ingredient in preventing the next one. But And I, I want to get to this question now, because I, I find it fascinating. It's not an academic question. It's not theoretical. It's not even counterfactual. And the question is, what did Donald Trump learn from his presidency? I would not even ask you this question because it would be irrelevant. But there's a very real possibility, very real possibility, that he will contend again for 2024. And even if he doesn't, then a Trump or a Trump avatar, uh, you know, will contend. Because you quote a senior national security official um, who observed Trump in the Oval, comparing him, it's one of my favorite movies and one of my favorite scenes, to the velociraptors um, in Jurassic Park. And that chilling scene when the pair, there were two of them, are hunting um, the two kids in the industrial kitchen, processing things out and working out how to open those locked doors. So I want to ask, other than the obvious conclusion that you hire only those people 
who will do what you say. What else do you think Donald Trump learned that would be of some value to him if, in fact, there's another another story? Yeah, I mean, that is certainly one of the, the most chilling images that, that stuck with me in, in doing the reporting for this book, uh, you know, is is that image. Because the point is not that Donald Trump learned about health care policy or tax policy. He, you know, he didn't. Uh, but he certainly learned on the personnel side. Uh, and that was his own inclination anyways. He just didn't necessarily have, you know, the, the tools or the group of people in place uh, he didn't expect to win in 2016. He didn't have a cadre of Trump loyalists ready to take on these positions. Now, after four years, he has a much more well-stocked cabinet of pre-vetted people, uh, you know, who would do what he would want. But to your point that it's about more than just personnel, I would say they certainly learned the levers of government, the door handles, if you will, much more. And you see that in the recent report, for example, from Jonathan Swan of Axios about uh, how in Trump. Uh, world today, they are already planning to basically change a whole category of thousands of civil servants to make them eligible to be fired and replaced with, uh, you know, political Trump loyalists. So that's an example of, you know, understanding the levers of government better. And then a third thing I think that would apply to this question of what did Trump learn? I think he had an insight uh, or a takeaway from how the Republican Party behaved, uh, which is to say that people were willing to jump off cliffs that others in American politics thought they were not. And that I think Trump has learned that they will go where I follow, even if I take them to a place of utter madness. And look at what he's doing in his current rallies, openly embracing and flirting with the QAnon conspiracy theory. In 2020, uh, he dabbled in this. He was asked at the, one of the debates, well, what do you think about this? And he said, well, I don't know anything about it, except that they support me. Now, now he openly uh, has a, a QAnon uh, a supporter uh, opening for his rallies. They play the QAnon anthem. So I think Trump learned that Republicans will follow me just about anywhere. Oh, now, one of the things he's learned, impeachment doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. And so he's been impeached twice, acquitted twice. If he had a second term, he would not be afraid of it because it didn't actually hurt him. In fact, he felt emboldened afterwards. His his popularity, to the extent that he ever had any, went to his highest level after the first impeachment trial to 49 percent in the Gallup. That was the highest he ever got. So, you know, he will not feel as constrained by the system because the system failed to hold him accountable uh, under the first term. And the points you made in a binary political system, presidential system with only two parties. If one of them becomes an instrument, a vehicle for a uh, married to tethered to the powers of the presidency, you end up with an extremely scary situation. I, I want to be remiss if I didn't ask the two of you, both of whom have um, studied foreign policy um, for much of your careers, write about it, comment about it. Um, what Again, if you if you could exercise the, the most clinical, cruel and unforgiving detachment in evaluating Trump's foreign policy, what what would you say were the greatest failures and how would you address the question of successes? Yeah, I mean, so I think on the failures, that's it's actually pretty straightforward. Obviously, an American 
the overall blow to uh, America's leadership in the world, uh, uh, having an American president for the only time I can think of, and I include the Cold War when the U.S. was in bed with many dictators, but even then did not have presidents who were publicly lavishing praise on them for their dictatorial ways. Uh, and undermining in general the credibility of the United States, I, I think that continues into the Biden administration because if you do things like make an Iran nuclear deal or enter the Paris Climate Accords and then withdraw from them, it's called into question America's future bargaining power. As long as we're this politically divided, everyone in the world now understands that they might make a deal with the United States, but it might not hold up through the next midterm election. So that's number one is the blow to U.S. Uh, cr credibility as a, an international leader is very significant and lasting. Number two, uh, the Russia uh, uh, and dealings with Putin and undermining of NATO from within. Uh, again, it's another hypothetical, but, um, you know, it's it's had Trump succeeded in withdrawing from NATO and he was very serious about it. In fact, multiple officials confirmed to us that it was much closer than people realized and top of agenda had he won re-election to the second term. Imagine that he had won re-election and, you know, Putin was poised to, you know, annihilate Ukraine. Uh, that's a very serious, uh, I think, uh, almost disastrous uh, Trump foreign policy predilection. Guys, I, I'm happy to do the successes, okay, because let's let's be straight about that. But even the successes are, 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 you know, not fully successful, right? I mean, on the one hand, you would say China is a good point, where basically he actually has reoriented America's point of view about China in a way that's pretty bipartisan at this point. Basically, both parties now are much more skeptical of China, I believe, uh, in a harder line policy. Now, his tariffs didn't work, didn't actually succeed in what he set out to do, but Biden hasn't lifted them either. So, you know, I don't know, again, the word success is probably not the right word, but an area where he clearly had an impact uh, in a way that's lasting. Another one would be the Abraham Accords. Again, you know, it's not Middle East peace in the sense that he promised. He promised a deal between the Israelis and Palestinians. He told us it would be easier than anybody thought. It turned out, of course, not to be. You know Aaron better than anybody how hard that is. But the Abraham Accords is a pretty significant breakthrough, even if it's not as good as that. Of course, he had very little to do with it. A lot of it was going to happen anyway. Israel and the Arab states were moving closer on their own because of the mutual shared view of Iran's threat. But they, you know, the administration was there when it happened, and administrations claim credit when things happen on their watch. And I think Jared Kushner certainly nudged them uh, toward that finale, and you have to uh, take an uh, acknowledgement of that. I think the third thing I would say uh, would be, um, I had a third one, oh, ISIS, which we don't talk about very much. And again, I don't know if this is actually him, but on his watch anyway, the Pentagon, the, the military were able to basically uh, defeat the caliphate. And that's a pretty big deal. Again, I don't know how much he had to do with it. Some military guys would give him credit for giving them more rope to, to wage the war. But broadly speaking, it wasn't that he did a lot, but it happened on his watch. He can claim credit. Right. I mean, if we had another hour, I'd ask you, but I do want to ask you both about this. You know, I interviewed um, James Clapper and he distinguished between, which I found fascinating, between secrets, which are knowable, and mysteries, which are not. So I will ask you the question, and I, you know the question I'm going to ask. Donald Trump's relationship with Vladimir Putin. It, it it may well in the world of empirical reality it may be it may be no it may be knowable i mean there may actually be something somewhere but um you're ju just your sense 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, one of the main theories of the case, right, advanced by Michael Cohen, Trump's former fixer and others, is that actually at base, it's, it is about Trump's desire to do business in Moscow, his pursuit of the Trump Tower deal, and the importance uh, that Russians and Russia in general had come to play in his faltering family business, the Trump Organization, as American banks withdrew credit uh, with all the you know troubles and bankruptcies. Both of Trump's sons at various points had said publicly that, you know, Russia was an important source of the financing for the business. And so uh, that part's knowable, ultimately. You know, someday somebody's going to have a fuller set of the Trump organization financial records. They're going to be able to know uh, whether uh, and to what extent uh, Russian interests were bankrolling Trump. Now, that may still leave it as a mystery, uh, you know, and there were many others who worked closely with Trump who came down to the view that, uh, you know, Trump has such an overall affinity for strongmen in general and Putin in particular uh, that has to do with his own, you know, bizarre uh, views about, quote unquote, strength and and uh, almost a fanboy status of Vladimir Putin. But one of the people who found it a mystery, at least during the presidency, was Dan Coates, who, of course, was own appointed national director of director of national intelligence, a former Republican senator, not a deep state actor former chief of staff to Dan Quayle. And he watched uh, Putin's performance at Helsinki, sorry, Trump's performance at Helsinki standing next to Putin and was so flabbergasted by the idea that we that Trump would trust Putin over his own intelligence agencies that he himself began telling people that it was possible that Putin had something on Trump. At least he wondered if that was possible. And that's an amazing thing if you think about it, that Trump's own intelligence director thought it was possible that the president of the United States was compromised by Russia in some way. So I think it's going to be, a question that will be asked for years to come. It will be subject to multiple books going forward. We're writing books about water. Yes. They're going to be writing about books about this for a long time. I, I want to ask you in the, in, the, in the minutes that remain about your own profession. Um, you know, in my next life, I would want to come back as a journalist. It seems to me to combine just everything that would be quite remarkable for a career. Irreverence, writing, travel, um, defending defending the republic, which is critically important, free speech, independent analysis. Uh, Jacob Hacker, in reviewing your book in the Post, argues that Trump would never have gotten into the White House had it not been for what he claims to be the mainstream media's, quote, routines that made classified messages on Hillary Clinton's private email server the biggest character issue of the campaign. Now, you could add to that the fact that Fox News ultimately became a sort of Bureau of Information for the Trump presidency um, and the Trump phenomenon, which as a business proposition would have simply been crazy for any media company to ignore. But to what degree um, do you think um, media and journalism is responsible for this phenomenon? You know, look, I think that uh, it is... Such a persistent uh, argument, but it it tends to overlook uh, some important, you know, really salient facts to me. First of all, there's those extensive uh, documentation of who exactly Donald Trump was. Anyone who wanted to understand Donald Trump in 2016 uh, could understand him very, very clearly. And in fact, been quite prescient at all the mayhem that followed. Uh, and it, you know, that 
conversation with the Trumpologist. You didn't need to read all their books, by the way. <laughs> it was it was pretty well documented. Uh, you know, this argument, I've heard it uh, expressed in very vehement terms, uh, you know, to leaders of the New York Times, uh, you know, but the, the sort of but her emails argument overlooks that uh, in a partisan society, probably readers of the New York Times, you know, voted more heavily <laughs> uh, Democratic and more heavily for Hillary Clinton in 2016 than in any previous election. Um, there's a strong case perhaps in media writ large or in broadcast media when it comes to the 2016 primaries. I, I, I think it's it's fair to look at the um, very imbalanced coverage that was given, all those shots of, uh, you know, the Trump jet waiting to land on the tarmac uh, and uh, the puffing up of him and not taking him seriously as a candidate may have been a factor in his primary victory over the 17 other Republicans in 2016. But I think it's very hard to, to really make that case about the outcome of the 2016 general election. Um, and, you know, I mean, the broader critique of journalism today is one that has been very much shaped, uh, incidentally, by Donald Trump. It's, uh, you know, all for all the sort of left-wing angst, uh, in many ways, they're playing into uh, a view of the media that Donald Trump himself has promoted the the undermining of the credibility and independence of the institution, the whataboutism that says that uh, you know voters are so stupid they can't make a legitimate distinction between absolutely legitimate coverage of wrongdoing by someone and then even worse wrongdoing uh, by their opponent. I mean that just uh, to me that that uh, plays right into Trump's critique of of uh, you know what the lamestream media uh, as as he calls it. Yeah. And I, I'm sure you've you've had to respond to critiques that books like these, and there aren't many. I mean, this book really does stand alone, I think. Um, um, critiques that you, you should have revealed a lot of this information in real time because the American public had a right to know, and some of it is quite explosive. How do you how do you respond to that? Yeah, look, I, I totally understand that. Absolutely. I will tell you that Susan and I spent four years covering Trump every single day, busting our butt, our humps, trying to get as much information as we could to be in the New Yorker and the New York Times and everything we learned that we could, we, we, we published at the time. Anything that's in our book uh, came from after he left office. We didn't leave anything on the table while he was in office, but we did decide that it wasn't enough what we, what we were able to find out during office, that there's more to be learned. And that was why it was worth doing a book to go out, go back and figure out even more what happened and put it out there for history. And that's important. You know, and, and I don't think there's anything in our book that we held back, for instance, uh, that if it had been out three months ago, would have suddenly changed the world. I mean, the book's been out for a few weeks. I don't think the world has changed. I think that what's valuable about a book is to be able to put everything in context, to be able to put everything in a single volume in a way that will stand the test of time that a single article in a newspaper simply won't do. This should be reported for history, and books are the way we do that. And by the way, also the way, of, not just for history in this particular case, but a prologue for what might come uh, uh, afterwards. If you want to know what a second term is like, you can read our book and see what he tried to do in the first term and wasn't able to do, but might be able to do in the second term. And that's something, again, you wouldn't see in a thousand word newspaper article. It wouldn't, it wouldn't stand the test of time. If there was something urgent that we had learned that had to be out there immediately for some particular reason, we would have published it, obviously. What we did, I think, in a number of instances, published things that we learned during the course of this book. But there's a value in putting everything together in a single volume like this in a broad uh, sweeping way. Let me close with a comment. 
for the two of you and a, a kudo, but a personal observation. This, for me, this was a very painful book to read, in part because uh, the Trump issue has divided my family in a fundamental way. And having worked for a quarter of a century for Republicans and Democrats and participated in a system, despite all of its imperfections and transgressions, that I care deeply about and I think it has remarkable potential. Ron Elving, in reviewing your book, uh, said that you have told a story that, in, quote, insists on attention like a fresh wound. It insists on attention like a fresh wound. And, you know, without succumbing to the notion that America is doomed and we're headed to some sort of dystopic future, civil war, coup d'etats, the end of the Constitution, this book's take, the book's takeaway is a compelling set of lessons for vigilance and, and action, frankly, and the part of and citizen participation and independent thinking, you know, to try to preserve our democratic norms and institutions. I'd like to close. This is a book about one president, but it brings to mind uh, the words of another. And I just want to, I'm, I know you're familiar with the quote, but it, it, it haunts me. Um, this is Lincoln in 1838 addressing the Young Men's Lyceum in Springfield. At what point shall we expect the approach of danger? By what means shall we fortify against it? Shall we expect some transatlantic military giant to step the ocean and crush us at a blow? Never. All the armies of Europe, Asia, and Africa combined with all the treasure of the earth, our own accepted in their military chest and with a Bonaparte for a commander, could not by force take a drink from the Ohio or make a track on the Blue Ridge in a trial of a thousand years. At what point then is the approach of danger to be expected? I answer, if it ever reach us, it must spring up amongst us. It cannot come from abroad. If destruction be our lot, we must ourselves be its author and finisher. Finisher, As a nation of free men, we must live through all time or die by suicide. I'd only say to you, Peter and Susan. Thanks so much for the work that you do. Thanks for coming on Carnegie Connects. Again, the book is The Divider. I apologize again that I don't have a copy of it right here. It's a must read. And I would only say I'm just hoping as an American, having worked and voted for Republicans and Democrats, that the two of you don't get an opportunity to write a sequel. Well, Aaron, thank you so much. And we really enjoy doing this. And you are, in fact, a journalist at this point in a lot of ways. Through these conversations you're having, this is this is partly what journalism is about. It's about having these discussions and airing important issues. And you're you're a natural at it. We really appreciate it. You bring such a wealth of experience, as you point out, not in a partisan way, but on both sides, uh, both types of administrations. I can't think of too many people in Washington who would be better at this. And we're so grateful to you for having us. Thanks, Peter. I I, I appreciate that. And again, um, till the next conversation. Take care and be well. Thank you for listening to Carnegie Connects, a production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Views expressed are those of the host and guest panelists, and not necessarily those of the Carnegie Endowment, which takes no institutional positions on public policy issues. Subscribe to Carnegie Connects on popular platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. Like what you heard today? Learn more at carnegieendowment.org slash Carnegie Connects. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Catherine Buchanan and Cliff Jayapranata, 
are our executive producers. I'm Aaron David Miller, and until next time, think positive and test negative.